0: We're getting a brand new series today called uh, World Changers. It's our Christmas series. And we're going to ultimately talk about on Christmas Eve the ultimate world changer, Jesus Christ, and why he came to this earth. And so we encourage you to invite your friends, invite your family to that. But when I say world changers, what do you think of? And some of you may think to yourself of significant historical figures, uh, Winston Churchill's of the world, the Martin Luther's, Martin Luther King Jr.'s, Nelson Mandela's, various Billy Grahams, people that just come to your mind that have had an impact on thousands, millions of people, maybe an inventor who came up with a product that changed everything. And you think through the different things that have changed our world. And it might shock some of you to realize that when I talk about world changers, I'm talking about you. Some of you might automatically disregard that. We think grandiose thoughts. We think of those big names, those huge figures that have changed all of time. But here's the premise of this series. God changed your world. Those of you who know Jesus Christ as your Savior, He changed your world, but He didn't just change your world so you could have a better life and you could have you know, just a great time with your family or enjoy whatever the stars differently than people who don't know the stars, whatever, can't see the stars. He changed your world so He could then use you to change the world around you. He changed your world so he could use you to then change the world that's around you. And so I want to ask the question, not just when you think of world changers, who do you think of, but who's God used in your life to most significantly change your world? And maybe it is a big historical figure. Maybe it was Billy Graham. Maybe it was somebody that, that's probably just a few of you though. But for many of you, it's probably your parents. For many of you, it might be a coworker, a sibling, a teammate, a friend, a classmate, Who's God used to most significantly change your world? And I'm going to share a story with you later in this sermon about a guy who changed my world. I don't even know his name still. And who was it for you? See, God changes your world so that he can then use you to change the world around you. And what we're going to look at today as we open up this first passage of Scripture in this series, and we're going to be in different spots throughout the Bible in this series, and what we're going to look at today is the process that God uses to make you into the world changer that he desires for you to be. And we're going to look at, uh, as we start off today, a story of the birth of a world changer. It's in the book of Exodus. It's not Jesus. Instead, it's a guy who points us to Jesus. His name is Moses. Many of the things in his life parallel the story of Jesus. He's born at a time when people are in uh, terrible oppression. They're under Egyptian oppression. During Jesus' day, it's Roman oppression. He's born during a time there's a ruler who wants to kill children to try and uh, stop and thwart the idea of him losing his own power. Happens during Jesus' time. Happens with Moses' time. See, in fact, everything about Moses' life, he is a deliverer, a redeemer, points us ultimately to Jesus Christ. And we can't see everything there is to say about Moses' life in the passage of Scripture that we'll read today. We're going to jump into a few different spots, and we're going to look at some different stages in Moses' life that I believe parallel the stages that God takes each one of us through to develop us into the world changers that he desires for us to be. The first one we're going to look at, it's really all of chapter 2, and then we're going to look at chapter 3, and we're going to look eventually at chapter 14. But the first one we're going to look at is his birth story. And just to give you the context for how we even get to why the birth of Moses is significant, is there was a guy named Joseph, and he was a Jew, an Israelite, a Hebrew And he became second in command in Egypt when there was a famine. And he brought all the Israelites, he brought his family and all the Israelites ultimately into Egypt and they came under peace. It was a great situation. They got jobs, they had the best land, it was wonderful. But then what ended up happening was there was another king that came into power. His name was, he's called the Pharaoh. And he didn't remember who Joseph was. The other king was dead, Joseph was dead. And he started seeing these Hebrews and they were multiplying and he started to become fearful and fear oftentimes makes us make bad decisions and so he starts looking around and became fearful these hebrews are going to multiply and then what if they partner up with one of our enemies and they from within our own town they they try to kill us and so they put he put the hebrew people the israelites the jews under oppression He put them in slavery. And they started to feed the economic system. It became a good thing for them. But then they started to multiply even more. It was the way that God was working. So he came up with a plan. It was infanticide. To abort these babies. Right when they're born, these male babies, all the male, have them killed. But we learn a lesson in Exodus chapter 1 that sometimes you have to defy the laws of the land in order to obey the law of God. And you see these women who won't do it. They won't kill these babies. And God shows favor to these women. And the Pharaoh gets upset he comes up with another plan. The new plan is if you have a baby and it's a little girl, she can live. But if you have a little boy, you've got to throw him into the alligator-infested Nile River. And so that's the context for Moses' birth. This is in chapter 2. And we'll read verses 1 through 10. We'll talk about the whole chapter. You can read the whole chapter on your own, but verses 1 through 10 we'll focus in on right now. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son, when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it, put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. And then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe. Pharaoh's the king. He's in charge. He's the most powerful man in the world at this time. His daughter goes down to the Nile River to bathe and her attendants are walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then the sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother, Moses' mom. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse her for me, and I'll pay you. <laughs> she got paid to nurse her own child. That's awesome. Some of your women are looking around like, hey, how do we get that work out? So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And then verse 10, when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter. He was adopted. He became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Moses' name means to draw out, the foreshadowing of ultimately he'll lead his people across the Red Sea and draw them out of slavery, out of bondage. But here we've got his birth story. Now, here's the advantage of looking at Moses' life that we might not see in our own. I'm going to talk to you about different stages of development, different things that God takes us through in the process of making us world changers. It's really hard to see in our own life. But in Moses' life, we get to look back. We know what happens next. We know what happens in the end. We can see things so much more clearly in his life than we can in our own. But I bet as we walk through these, you're going to identify with one of these stages. I think that's where I'm at. I think that's what's going on in my life. And the first stage that we see in Moses' life is that he's at a stage of preparation. And what God does is he puts us in the perfect place of preparation. God puts us in the perfect place of preparation. It might not feel like it at the time. When you look at Moses' story, if you're Moses' mom, you're thinking, why, why a boy, why a, a child at all? But if I'm going to have a child, why am I having a boy at this time? Why couldn't it have been a few years ago? Why couldn't it be a few years from now? Why is it right now at this moment? God, why are you doing this? Some of you feel that way. What's going on in your life? Some of you are in a stage of preparation right now. It might be that you're doing the same things you've always done and your relationship with Jesus and your walk with Jesus, but it's just not the same and you know it. Maybe you read through the Bible every year in your own Bible reading, but it's like God's just not speaking to you right now. You might be in a place of preparation. Some of you might be in a job and you're just thinking, why am I in this job? I want to be in a different job, but God's got you there because he's preparing you for something in the future. Some of you are raring to go. Maybe you're just about to get out of college or whatever it is and you're thinking, I've got, my wife's going to be wasted away if I don't do it right now. God's got you at a place of preparation. Some of you, it's painful. Sometimes you've got to till the soil. That means brokenness before it's ready for our fruit. And God might have you at a place of preparation. God's continually preparing us for the plan that he has for us. He's been doing it since before your birth. I love this psalm in Psalm 139. David says that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. That we, before, When we were in our mother's womb, God knew us. In fact, he knew us and had a plan for us before the beginning of time. I love Ephesians chapter 2. It says that we're God's workmanship, talk about being woven together, it means that we're God's masterpiece, it's poiema is the Greek word, we're God's workmanship, His work of art, His masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus, and then look at the last part, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So God has prepared good works for you to do, but also He's got to prepare you to do those good works. God prepares good works for us to do, but he also prepares us for those good works, and that's what he's doing in the life of Moses. Everything that happens in chapter 2, we can see. He couldn't see it at that moment. His mom couldn't see it. And there's no way you could have known it while you were living, but when you look back, you can see that God was sovereignly orchestrating these things for the ultimate plan that he had for Moses' life, and he's doing the same thing in our lives. Try to imagine being Moses' mom. You know, at this time, if you have a kid, you have to throw it in the Nile the alligator-infested Nile River, if it's a boy. What do you think it was like when she realized she was pregnant? Was it rejoicing or was it stressful? We know that she has two kids already. The sister gets mentioned here later in chapter two in what we read. But there's an older sister named Miriam. There's a brother that he has who's three years older than him, named Aaron. And so before Moses comes, the mom's I'm guessing that she's praying, God, make it a girl. If I'm going to, 50-50 chance, I've already had one girl, one boy, became pregnant, I'm going to guess this was an accident in the sense that they didn't intend to get, this wasn't the part of their family planning process. Well, I'm pregnant. How did this happen? Well, we know how it happened, but why did it happen now? And then she has this little boy. Imagine how stressful that would be, knowing the context, knowing what's going on during this time. The question she probably asked God, why a boy? Why now? But we know that she had some joy in it because she responded like a normal mom and in, in verse two. It says that she became pregnant, gave birth to a son, and when she saw him, she saw that he was a fine child. <laughs> I like that. It's mentioned, his birth is mentioned in the New Testament a couple times. You can see a summary of Moses' life in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen, the first Christian martyr, is before the Sanhedrin, he's given his sermon that he's gonna that's gonna get him killed, and he summarizes Moses' life, and he says that he was no ordinary child. In Hebrews chapter eleven, the Hall of Faith, it talks about Moses' life and says when he was born, he was no ordinary child. But I like how Mom says it in Exodus chapter two and verse two: He was a fine baby. See my baby, that is a fine baby. So every mom thinks their baby's a fine baby. Just so you know, because I've seen some ugly kids, not yours, but all the moms think their baby's a fine baby. In fact, every parent, most parents think their kid is special for some reason. Not an ordinary child. You hear my baby I mean, your baby crying. That's really annoying. My baby crying. That's like the next Pavarotti. That's like if my baby starts walking probably right on schedule. But, of course, as the parent, I think it's early. He's going to be the next Cam Newton, right? There's physical abilities here. And so all parents see their kids like this. They think that they're awesome. They think they're not ordinary. They think they're beautiful and beautiful is probably the easiest way to translate this, but you've got to remember the context. Not only are these kids supposed to be thrown in the Nile, but this is not, they don't have the medical technology we have. There's an incredibly high infant mortality rate. What Moses' mom probably means when she looks at this child is if it wasn't for what Pharaoh had to say here, this child would live. He's healthy, looks good, he'd make it, but why now? Why this? But it, it wasn't a mistake that God had Moses born to these two parents. Their names aren't as famous. They've got an incredible platform. In fact, they get mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, and it says that what they did next was by faith. They defy the laws of the land because there's a time when, when you get commanded to do something that's contrary to God's word, and God's word is superior. It's the ultimate authority. And so they will obey what God says rather than what Pharaoh says. They're not afraid of Pharaoh, and they've got incredible courage, they've got great faith. It's by faith. What they do is they hide this child. Now, imagine how hard it would be to hide a child. It says here they did it for three months. And he's a fine baby. <laughs> well, some of you moms, if you have a really cute baby, you can't even put him on Facebook. Think about how tempting that would be. You can't tell your neighbors. And you've got to stop anyone from hearing this child from crying. Think about how stressful that was for three months for Moses' parents. And then they come up with a plan. And they, they, do, they obey the command, technically. They put them in the Nile River. But they also create a basket, put tar and pitch on it. And, and notice it doesn't say, and I realize this, I was reading, Chuck Swindoll has a book where he talks about the whole life of Moses. I recommend it. It's just a biography of Moses. And he it says that he doesn't just send them floating down the Nile River. Because when I've heard the story before, I've kind of always thought about it like that. Like, they put this baby in there, and it's, you know, God just worked it out that the baby ended up by this Pharaoh's daughter. That's not what the passage says. They placed... This basket. They didn't float the basket down the the river. They set the basket in a spot in the reeds so that when Pharaoh's daughter would come out to take a bath in the Nile, hold on, does that not sound weird to you? Pharaoh's the most powerful man in the whole world. This is a princess. Why is she taking a bath in alligator infested waters? And we don't know this for sure. The Bible doesn't tell us this is why, but historically we know that it's probably a fertility bath. She's coming down because she's infertile. And she's coming down there hoping that she can have a baby. Now, back up. It's hard to see when you're living it, but for us, there's no way you can tell me this is a mistake, what happens in this passage. That God would have Moses, the deliverer of the Hebrew people, born into a Hebrew family that lives by faith, that has the courage to disobey Pharaoh. What's Moses going to do in his life? That he's going to then be put providentially in a basket in water? to be delivered out of the water, to be pulled out, and then be adopted into an Egyptian family that he's got to know the ways of the Egyptians. This is God's providence. He's working, putting him in the perfect place. Some of you might feel like, you know, it's a mistake. Like, how did I end up here? And this is a mess. And why is my life like? I remember when I first became a Christian. I was 18 years old and started going to a church. Became a Christian before I started going to church. Somebody had shared Christ with me and told me about how I could have a relationship with Jesus. And then they invited me to come to church. I started meeting these Christian kids, 16, 18, 20 years old, kind of in that range. Started hanging out with them. we we'll go to their house, start seeing their families. And I started to think, God, why don't you give me a Christian family? Why do I have to have the mess that I'm involved in? Why, why this? And I started praying to God, almost like he messed up. Like, God, if you had just given me, it could have saved me from making some of the decisions I made. could have protected me from these. But now I can look back on it, and I don't know all the reasons why. But I trust that he was preparing me for what I do now. Maybe for things that will happen in the future. And some of you right now, you're, you might be in a job. You think, why am I, why is this? Like it's not using all of your abilities. It's not using all of your skills. You're not happy in this. But maybe it's part of your preparation. Some of you, it's sickness. Some of you might be a marriage. Some of you might be circumstances in another relationship. It could be all kinds of different things. But God's got you in the perfect place. It's not an accident. You might not be able to see it as you're living it. But you look back on someone else's life and it becomes so clear. And what happens next for Moses, he gets adopted into this Egyptian family. And Stephen summarizes it well when he's giving that speech in Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7 and verse 22, he talks about what would happen for Moses. It says, Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was powerful in speech. Well, that's interesting because later he says he can't speak well in action. And so Moses was being trained. He was being trained in all the military strategies of Egypt. He was being trained in, in multiple languages. Many people believe, I think it's Josephus says, that a lot of people think that Moses was being brought up to be the next Pharaoh. He's getting all the best education. He's getting language change, science training to the best they had, medical training that they have. All. This is the point in the story that if Moses' life is a movie, this is the montage of his training. Like, I don't know if you've seen Rocky or not. If you haven't, I'm so sorry. You should see that. It's like some of you condemning me for pin- Princess Bride. Great movie. What happens in each one of them, they're not all good, but what happens in each one of them is there comes a point where Rocky realizes he's going to fight a big fight. And then he has to go into training. And they do the training like they just place. You tracking with me? Or you just think I'm nuts? And he starts running. He's like running the steps. And he gets to the top in Philly, and there's like a statue of himself up there at the top of the steps. And, he starts fighting, you know, meat in lockers. And he's like punching the meat, the frozen meat. And he's running with, you know, a sled behind him and he's flipping tires. And He did CrossFit before CrossFit was cool. He's like doing all this stuff. Or, or, or I'll date myself again. Karate kid, wax on, wax off. <laughs> you kind of this kid into cleaning your cars, man. It's the training point. And God has some of us in a training stage. And we just want to jump. and We want to get to the big fight. We want it to be the main event. We want to be the hero. We want to be the champion he's preparing you. He's training you. And what happens for Moses is he goes through this training and then you can read in the next part on your own in Exodus chapter two. He goes to visit his people, the Hebrew people. And God's put a desire in his heart. I believe it's a God-given desire that he has and he senses the calling that's in his life. He's supposed to be a deliverer and he sees that things are not the way they should be. Things are wrong. Oftentimes a vision is born when we, have, we see that things aren't the way they are. When we have a burden in our heart, that this isn't how stuff's supposed to be. There aren't supposed to be, you think about the vision for our church. There's over a million lost people in our city. That's a million people that if they die today, they're going to go to hell. The people that don't even identify with any church, religion, anything like that. And there's probably more than a million lost people. That's where our vision comes out of. We talk about connecting people to Jesus for life change. We challenge every member of our church. Have at least one of those people that you're trying to reach this year. And if our church will reach some, and then another church will reach some, and other churches that are preaching the gospel, it's because there's a problem. The problem is there are people that don't know Jesus Christ. There's no way they can live the life that God's designed for them to live apart from relationship with God. And so they've got to start there. And then God does a work, continues to move and changes their life so they can then use them to then change the world around them. And this desire he has for each one of your lives. He's prepared these works for you in advance. We've got to prepare you for these works. Some of you will get a burden for other things. You'll see some of you are maybe teachers, and I know some of you do that job. And maybe you'll realize there's a lot of kids that can't even Read. So it breaks your heart. You want to teach them to read, but then God's also giving you this, this Christian message that changes their life. And so maybe start teaching them to read the Bible. People see hungry people in our city. that breaks your heart. And so it's the broken heart over the, the problems that exist. We talk about the orphan crisis. There's all kinds of problems. Things are not as they should be in this world. Some of you have worked with cancer patients. That, that's not how it should be, but he gives you a burden for that. And it's in that burden, then he starts to give you a vision for how things should be. Nor does the gospel intersect with those things. And what happens for Moses, I believe, is a, it's, a, it's a God moment. He sees there's an Egyptian slave master that's beating a heap. That's not how things should be. And he is a deliverer. And this is where I believe that he, he decides he, what he wants to do is greater than living in the palace. It's greater than being the next Pharaoh. He wants to deliver God's people. The problem is he does it in his own time and he takes things into his own hands. And he rushes ahead of God. And he kills this Egyptian slave master. Then he buries them in the ground. Then you read Acts chapter 7 and we get an idea of what he thought would happen. The next day he comes out and he thinks that the Hebrews are going to think, this is our deliverer. But that's not what they think. They say, who made you ruler and judge? Well, there's a time where he's going to be able to say, God, but that time's not right now. And he rushed ahead, but he was 40 years old. He had spent 40 years in training. It still wasn't time. And what God does next he sends him out into the desert. Pharaoh finds out what Moses did, wants to kill him. Moses is not an idiot. He doesn't stick around to talk to Pharaoh about this. He flees out into Midian, where he's going to spend the next 40 years of his life in training. That's 80 years of preparation. Some of you are thinking, man, I've got to get busy. Some of you are 80, and you're thinking to yourself, no, God's done with me. He might have just been preparing you up to this point. He spends 40 years wandering around with sheep as a shepherd. Oh, and if you look at it, he's actually in the exact land where he's going to end up leading those Hebrew people for 40 years. God's training him. He's training him in the geography. He's training him how to deal with whiny sheep. He's training him in ways that we could probably never imagine, and he's got him out in the desert. Let me tell you something. There are certain things you cannot learn in a classroom. Some of the things you can only learn in a desert And most of us have probably never been in an actual desert, but many of us have been there spiritually. And God may have you there now. And there may be an exact reason that he has you there now. Don't rush out of it. Be still. What does he want to teach you? I mentioned the book by Swindoll. Swindoll does a big section just about the training in the desert. And he talks about it like it's university training. So ignore that it's a major. But he gives us four majors that we can get in the desert we can't get in other places. He says, a major in obscurity... A major in time, and he talks about in that section about how you can't rush spiritual maturity. It's not something you can just, you know, we're so instant in our society. We want everything quick. If it just make me spiritually mature, God, like we pray that prayer, and yeah, just wait and see what he does. He says a major in solitude. Most of us don't want that one. A major in discomfort. Anybody praying for that right now before I mentioned it? I don't see that hand. There's a hand. I see that hand. There's one hand probably already more mature than me, to pray for that. He doesn't mention this one, but how about this one? A major in failure? We learned some of our greatest lessons in the, the ways that we blow it. Some of you think that you're disqualified from God ever using you because you've blown it, but he, this guy wouldn't even be in the desert. He probably thought to himself, at that moment, I'm the guy. I have the training. I know how to do this. I've got the relationship with the Hebrews. I've got the relationship with the Egyptians. There's nobody better than me. What does he lack? Humility. Something you learn in failure. And he says, God uses his greatest regret to then send him into some of the greatest years of his training. God may have you in a place of preparation right now. Don't rush. Doesn't mean he doesn't want to use you. He's just preparing you. And he's got you in the perfect place. Because God puts us in the perfect place of preparation. But there's always going to be a crossroads in our faith journey. Sometimes I'll give you points, and they're general truths, like it's oftentimes true. Notice that I'm saying today, it's always true. God's always going to bring us to a crossroads of faith, and that's what we see happens next in Moses' life, and just one chapter later. It happens to be 40 years later in his life, but just one chapter later in chapter three. It's a famous story the story of the burning bush. And some of you have heard this before. Maybe you've heard me joke about it before. I've mentioned to you different times when I've caught things on fire. I've caught a lot of stuff on fire. Uh, For those of you who are new to our church, it never goes well. caught a lawnmower on fire one time. That's because I'm dumb. That's what ended up happening. That's a summary of that story. Caught my deck on fire recently. That wasn't a good decision. Uh, Yard waste I've caught on fire. But here's what always happens in all those stories. No one's been injured so far, but what always happens in those stories is the fire goes out by itself or it consumes the thing that's on fire. Yard waste, most of my lawnmower, uh, not my deck, thankfully. Here's what's unique about the fire that Moses experiences. He wakes up, it's just another day. He's out in the wilderness, same place he's been, leading the sheep, backside of the desert. There's a fire on this bush coming from within the bush, but the bush is not being consumed. The fire's not going out, the bush isn't burning up. Now you've got his attention. Moses doesn't know this is God. Try and imagine being Moses. He starts coming towards the bush, and then the Bible tells us because he started to come towards the bush, then God spoke to him. Moses, Moses, tell me that wouldn't freak somebody out. Like, we think, oh, this is the Bible, so that stuff happened all the time. No, it doesn't happen all the time. Moses is coming towards this bush. The bush starts talking to him. He still doesn't know it's God. And then the bush says, this is God, And he believes it. The bush says, this is the God of your father, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, the Hebrew God. Calling him back to really his roots. And then all the stuff that he gets told, he would love to hear. I've seen the misery of my people. See, his people have been in bondage and slavery for 400 years. Tell me if you're those people It doesn't feel like God's not paying attention. God stopped working. Most of them probably don't know about the promise in Genesis chapter 15, or they're not thinking about it because when you're living this stuff, a lot of times you just forget. You just get in the, you're so close to what's happening. You can't see the the forest. You're stuck in the trees. And Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 through 15, tell us that God told Abraham, your people are going to be in bondage for 400 years. And then I'm going to lead them out. And they're going to take a whole bunch of stuff with them. But it says here that God, he sees their problem. He sees their misery. He hears them crying out. And he's got concern for them. Some of you might feel like God's not paying attention. He doesn't realize. He hears you. He sees you. He's concerned for what's happening. And here he says he's coming down. If you're Moses, you're thinking, this is awesome. God's going to take care of it." It's like us. If it was like, God, I, there's a million lost people in your city, and I'm going to do a work in their lives. But then there's the crossroads of faith. And we'll just look at a couple verses in this chapter. In verse 9 and 10. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. This is God speaking. And I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. And this is the crossroads. And so now, go. Not, I'm going to fix all of this. Go, Moses. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. You know what Moses says next? Me? Who, me? No, God, I'm cool with, like, you can talk from a burning bush, and you got this. You don't even need me. And what this is is a crossroads of faith. There will always be a crossroads of faith. What you see, and we're not going to go through all the verses in chapter 3 and chapter 4, is that Moses starts coming up with multiple reasons why this can't, they won't believe me, I'm slow to speak, really? Because the New Testament says that you are a gifted orator. Somebody lying? Or do you not see it accurately? Think about the thoughts he would have at this point. Maybe it's not the life he always dreamed of having when he's being trained to be the next pharaoh and he's the prince of Egypt but he's got a nice job. We find out that he gets married while he's in the desert. He has two kids. He's been working this job for 40 years. It's what he knows. He's 80 years old. He killed a guy. Think about all the things that could be rushing through Moses' mind as God says, go. He doesn't invite him. If you'll come, I'll use you. I'll use somebody else. No, Go, Moses. It's not a request. Kind of like our commission. Go, make disciples. Not if you're like one of the super big-time Christians, not if you, you feel inclined or if your job lends itself to it. Go. 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 He tells them, here, go. But it's a crossroads. What will he do? You go through the Bible, you see every character comes to crossroads of faith. Adam and Eve in the garden, what was the tree? It was a crossroads of faith. Not everybody chooses the right way. And you're not limited to just one in your life. Look at Abraham. Abraham, come follow me. I don't know where we're going. You just come follow me. I'll tell you when we get there. <laughs> Are you kidding? And Abraham goes. And he's promised he'll have many descendants. He's infertile. He can't have kids. His wife can't have kids. They, they think it's a joke. Like, why does It seems almost cruel. You're even promising these things. And then he has a son. And guess what happens? Another crossroads of faith. Give me your son. The thing in your life that you'd be most likely to make into an idol and put in the place of me. I want you to surrender that to me. Another crossroads of faith. The Israelites. He brings them out into the wilderness after they cross the Red Sea. That's what's going to happen. They cross the Red Sea. God promises them they're going into the promised land. Numbers chapter 12. But there's giants in the land. The fruit's huge. But God promised you that you'd win. Crossroads of faith. Some people choose the right way. Some people choose the wrong way. Look at Esther. She gets in this place of position, place of power for such a time as this. It's a crossroads of faith. There's continually crossroads of faith. You go into the book of Genesis and you see Joseph in the book of Genesis with Potiphar's wife. Think about how that story could be different if he had made a different decision. It's a crossroads of faith. And you're not limited to just one in your life. God brings us to these crossroads of faith. And he's got Moses there right now, but look at what he says to Moses. He Moses says, who am I, verse 11, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And that's what many of us think. Think about our commission and our calling to make disciples. But who am I? There's a million lost people. Who, but I just, I've got, this is, this is what I do. I don't have these gifts. And I'm afraid. And what might they think of me? What does God say to Moses? He doesn't say, oh, Moses, you can do it. It's a pep talk. Build up your self-esteem. Tell you about your gifts. And God said, I will be with you, verse 12, Stop looking at yourself, Moses. It's not about you, Moses. It's not about your failure, Moses. It's not about the fact that you're a murderer, Moses. It's not about the fact that you're 80 years old, Moses. It's not about the fact you've been working with sheep, Moses. I'm with you. Interesting. We see that command or that promise continually. Joshua, who's a successor to Moses, when he's going to lead, he's the one who actually leads the people into the promised land. What does God say to him? Joshua 1.9, be strong and courageous. Why would I be strong and courageous? Because I'm with you. What about our commission? Go, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teach them the everything I've commanded you. And what's the promise? I will be with you. Not your awesome, not your giftedness, not it's okay, don't worry about your past sin. No, I'm using all that stuff to put you in a place where you're going to experience, it's not his omnipresence, you're going to experience my presence I'm with you, and he complains later. I can't speak. What does God say? No, 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 you're a really good speaker, Moses. He says, who made your mouth? I made your mouth. I'm talking about the creator God being with you. Trust me, when you come to those crossroads of faith, whether it's a moment when you're thinking about sharing your faith, whether it's a huge decision in your life, whether it's a time of temptation, you think about the 12 disciples, how many of them crossroads of faith, come follow me. I'm going to leave the family business. Hey, tax collector, come follow. Nobody likes me anyways, Jesus. So I'm not going to help your ministry. Think about all the things that could have been said. When you come to a crossroads of faith, he'll be with you. And I challenge you, be, be like Peter. Peter gets out of the boat. He's walking on water in the New Testament. And he's doing great as long as he keeps his eyes on Jesus. As soon as he starts thinking about his circumstances, as soon as he starts thinking about why God, obeying God, that won't work. That'll never happen. Here, He starts to sink. Keep your eyes on the author and perfecter of your faith. Keep your eyes on the one who's promised his presence in your life. You will come to crossroads of faith. He will be with you. Trust him. And the third point, before I make the third point, I just want to say something. I, I hope you know it's not lost on me. <laughs> when you, I realize when you preach a sermon, it's kind of like, it's kind of like a TV show in a sense where you got to get all this content into it. You're talking about life, and life is messy, and life happens all the time, but you preach a sermon, and it almost seems like you're either at a place of preparation, or you're at a crossroads of phase, or you're at, and the next point that I'm going to give you is that God gives you a platform for impact. It's a platform where you can point people to him. And it can almost seem like, all right, he's preparing me, and then I'll come to the crossroads, and then I'll have the, let me tell you something, you have a platform while you're being prepared, you have a platform while you're at the crossroads, it all kind of blends together in real life. It's not just point A, point B, point two, you know, here's the thing, one, two, three, here's how this all works. Life's messy. And when you're in preparation, you still have a platform. And when you're at a crossroads of faith, you still have a platform. And he'll do some preparation while you're on the platform, he'll do some, and all this stuff kind of blends together. And what happens is we're going to jump to chapter 14, and we're skipping over a lot of significant stuff. There's 10 different plagues that happen. Moses starts to take leadership, he learns to trust God. And what's happened at this point, is that everything that was promised on Genesis chapter 15 hundreds of years earlier has happened. And it sounds crazy that you're gonna spend 400 years in slavery, but then you're gonna walk out loaded with a bunch of money, are you kidding me? And that's exactly what happens. And God's just killed the firstborn children of all the Egyptians, he's led these people, they're marching boldly in the wilderness, and then they start to look at their circumstances. They start to say stuff that isn't true. They start to complain about Moses' leadership. They look and they see the Red Seas behind them. and one direction are enemies, and another direction is the wilderness, and then they look straight ahead, and Pharaoh's changed his mind when he said he could let him go. He realized it'll ruin the economy of Egypt, and so he We know that money oftentimes drives people with great passion. He grabs 600 of his best chariots, and they come after the Israelites. Now, oftentimes we think about that like it was overpowering of the Egyptians to have these 600 chariots. There are 600,000 Israelite men armed out here, but they're terrified because these are the special forces. These are the Navy SEALs of Egypt, and they're coming after them. They're terrified, and they start to say to Moses, we didn't even want to come with you which isn't true. Moses has learned at this point that when people are hurting, they say some crazy stuff. And you get involved in impacting other people's lives. Let me tell you something. You're coming in contact with hurting people and they will say stuff. They'll say stuff about you that's not true. Be gracious. People are afraid. They do things they wouldn't normally do. I'm gonna pick up, and I just wanna read you verses 12 through 14 and really focus in on verse 14. Verse 12 Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? They were not begging to serve the Egyptians. For those of you who don't know the story, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Okay, that's debatable. Moses answered the people. He doesn't defend himself. Think about this guy, how impatient he was and how passionate he was before He doesn't defend himself, but he points people to the Lord. He uses his platform to point people to the Lord. He says, do not be afraid. Oh, the very thing that he learned from God himself. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. And what he points them to here is the picture of salvation in the Old Testament that ultimately points us to the picture of salvation in the New Testament. The Egyptians you see today, you'll never see again, but then this verse 14, I want you to notice, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Trust him. He's got this. Don't worry about 600 versus 600,000. Don't worry about weapons and training. Trust the Lord. Now, time out, pause. And you can only get this when you survey Moses' life quickly like we've done today. This is the guy that in chapter 2 saw a burden, sensed from the Lord. That was Somebody had to do something, and he kills somebody in his own strength. Gets ahead of God. And now he says, be still. God will fight. This murderer Moses, it says about him in the book of Numbers, he's the most meek man in all the earth. Do you know why? Because God changes this man. He does a work in him. He does not work in Moses to prepare him so that he can do a work through Moses so that he can impact his world. His world is about two million Hebrews. I'm going to guess none of us in here are going to impact two million. Million Jewish people this Christmas. Maybe it'd be awesome if you did. I don't know everybody's story, but I'm going to guess that's probably not going to happen. But God has given you a platform. He gives each one of us a platform. And he gives us a platform for the sake of impact. I love how one of our elders says it, Dave Lenhart. give him credit. Usually I steal his material and I never mention him. Give him credit today. He says all the time God strategically places us in our own little world to reach our own little world for Christ. That's based on Acts chapter 17. Paul's talking to secular guys. He's talking to these guys. He says, God's given us the exact times, the exact places where we would live so that we would reach out for him and find him. And God's put you in the exact spot that he wants you to be in, giving you the exact platform he wants you to be so that he can change your world so that he can then use you and that platform to change the world of those around you. The platform's different for everybody. Some of you are moms. And you feel like all I have are these kids, I'm just with these kids all the time, then reach those kids for Christ. Some of you are working in a job and you think, I don't want to be in this job, but he's given you that job and that is your platform right now. Use that platform. Maybe it's not even about you. Maybe he has you there for the sake of someone else. Some of you, it's a relationship. Some of you are married, a non-believer is your spouse. Maybe, maybe you can win them to Christ. God's given you that spot. It's not a mistake. He's put you in the perfect place, and He is preparing you, and He has a plan for you, and He's going to do work, and you'll come to crossroads of faith. But you have a platform. Use that platform to point people to Christ. It's the very thing that Moses does here in this passage. I told you I'd share with you about a guy that I don't even know his name and the impact he had in my life. Uh, There was a guy who was working at General Motors in Flint, Michigan. I was born and raised in Flint, Michigan. And he went one day into a men's restroom and stuck a little booklet, oftentimes people call them gospel tracts, a little booklet that has a story of Jesus on it. And it talks about how each one of us are sinners. And the Bible says that we all sin, we fall short of the glory of God. And it's really bad news. It's pretty depressing at the beginning. It says nobody can do enough good works. Nobody can make themselves right with God. But then it says that Jesus came and he lived a sinless life. And in that sinless life, he still was crucified. But he wasn't dying for his sins. He was dying for mine and for yours. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The wages of sin is death, and what we should get is separation from God. But he took that death upon himself on the cross. He took the very wrath of God on himself at the cross. But he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead and offers us a gift. And it's eternal life. But if you want that gift, you have to receive the gift. You have to take the gift. You have to ask Jesus to be your Savior. He put that little booklet, he stuffed it into a roll of toilet paper in the shop in General Motors in Flint, Michigan, and a guy came in named Lazarus. Lazarus picked it up, took that thing home, started to read it, ended up placing his faith in Jesus Christ, and then started taking his family to church, and his his family came to Christ at that church, and he had an 11-year-old son named Mike. Mike came to Christ because of that little gospel tract that was stuck in the bathroom in 1959, and in 1995, Mike had grown up, he became an attorney, and started a Bible study at my public high school and then ended up telling me how I could have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and I ended up placing my faith in Jesus Christ. I don't know who the guy was that stuck that gospel track in that toilet paper roll in 1959. I know his platform that day, I don't know if he was a temporary worker, I don't know if he was a skilled worker, I don't know if he was just working on the line, but his platform that day was that he worked at that shop in General Motors in Flint, Michigan. Someday, someday I'm going to thank that guy. Because he radically transformed my life. Because he used his platform. I don't know what platform you have. But he used his platform to point people to Christ. Will you? Whatever platform God's given you. Whether it's a teammate, a classmate, a spouse, a, a co-worker, whoever it is. God puts people in your path. We challenge our church because we know there's a million lost people in this city, and we can't do it all as as a church. We pray for other churches to do it too, but we want at least the members of our church to be serious. We challenge every member of our church to have one person they're praying for every year. They're trying to lead to Christ. What about let's get more specific this Christmas? Who can you reach the next four four months or four weeks? And this month, this month between now and Christmas, it's less than a month now. Pressure's really on. But God brings people across your path every day. It might be a barista. It might be a waitress, it might be a cousin, and it, well, I don't care if they don't live in this city. It might be a brother that you got that lives in Colorado, it might be somebody that you, you work for a company that's international and you talk to this guy in China all the time, but you've never asked him if he has a relationship with Jesus. Would you pray and ask God to put that person on your heart? He's given you a platform. Maybe you're in a season of preparation, maybe you're at a crossroads of faith, or maybe it's a time of reaping in your life, and it's time to use that platform to point people to Christ. God changed your world if you know Jesus as your Savior. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I'm not talking to you today, actually. I'd invite you to come to know Jesus as your Savior. To accept the information I just told you was on that little booklet that I heard about that was in 1959 in a shop in General Motors. But if you know that information, you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, How will you use your platform to point people to Christ? Because that's his plan for you. He's prepared good works for you, and he's preparing you for those works. But even in that process, he wants to use you. So will you be used? Let's pray. Father, I come before you today, and I thank you for each person that has come here to this church for one reason or another. Some of this is their church family, and I pray they would be encouraged today. I pray that you would work in their hearts and show them where they're at. Maybe you're doing a work of preparation, and they didn't see it. Maybe you've brought them to a crossroads of faith and, and, and you'll push them down the right path. Father God, maybe there are people here that don't know your son Jesus as Savior at this point, moment, and I pray that you would have them come to know you. I pray that, that some of them might even be religious people. They don't know what it is to have a relationship with your son Jesus. I pray that you'd show them something different here today than what they've ever experienced in religion before. And I pray today would be the day of salvation. If you need to trust Jesus as your Savior, we're going to have some people in the back of the room after the service. Prayer counselors are going to have a little little name tag on that says, I can pray for you. I just encourage you to, by faith, go up to them and say, I want to trust Jesus as my Savior. And Father, I pray for those of us who do know your son Jesus as Savior, that you'd spur us on. I pray you'd put in our minds right now the name of a person or the face of a person you want us to reach for your son, Jesus Christ, this Christmas. And Father, God, I pray that you would work in our hearts, and continue to do a work to make us more and more like your son Jesus. So that when people look at our lives, like we look at Moses' life, they would say, there's so many, there's so many things that point me to Christ in their life. I pray you do that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.